we can sometimes play into the stereotype of just being angry and against everything. The model of, of Jesus uh, in his earthly ministry was very much to have righteous anger, to call people out, but equally to love people really well. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that brings you this show every single week. The magazine features all of the latest news on what God is doing in the UK church and beyond, plus fantastic regular columnists and reviews of the latest Christian books. Do check it out at premierchristianity.com, where you can also take out a subscription and receive the print magazine through your door every single month and enjoy full online access as well. But right here on the profile, we like to speak to a different Christian every week and hear something of their life story. And I'm delighted to say that my guest on the show this week is Ross Hendry. Ross is the CEO of the Christian charity Care, and Ross was previously CEO at Spurgeon's, the children's charity, and he's also worked in public policy and politics. And so there's loads to dive into. Ross, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sam. It's great to have you with us. Now, I understand your life story begins, and if I can detect the accent correctly, does it begin in Wales? It does indeed. Um, I feel very self-conscious going back to Wales these days because they all think I sound very posh in English. Um, but I grew up in southwest Wales, um, a little village outside a, a town called Llanelli, which was on the margins of rural Wales and industrial uh, Wales. First language Welsh speaker, mum was a Welsh teacher, dad was a small businessman. And where did Christian faith first come into the picture for you and your family? Well, probably increasingly less the case now, but I was probably at the end of the period where lots of parents would take their children to chapel uh, every Sunday. That certainly was the case of going with mum and gran uh, to the small Welsh-speaking Baptist chapel that uh, generations had been members of. The church had been founded in the uh, sort of the Welsh revival of the turn of the 20th century. Um, I grew up not hearing the gospel. Uh, I was in the service for the singing, uh, would recite my memory verse for the week and then be trudged off to Sunday school to do colouring in and sort of just nice stories. I was incredibly fortunate with God's providence that uh, when I was a teenager, uh, they appointed an evangelical minister uh, who, when I was 16, the deacon said, time for us to be baptised. I've got many young people. We need to baptise him quick. And he said, no, I'm not baptizing him until I, he knows what he's committing to. And uh, that amazing guy, I'll, I'll give him a shout out, Geraint Morse, who's still a minister uh, down in West Wales, uh, led me to Christ. Still a baby Christian with no fellowship. So I really grew when I came to university in London and uh, attended a church called All Souls, Langham Place, where John Stott was uh, rector emeritus and Richard Bewes was the rector. Amazing preaching team. It blew my mind that there could be that many Christians all in one place at one time. So that was my formative years. And really, All Souls was the start of, if you like, me growing up as a Christian. Yes. Uh, and you mentioned some names there, one in particular very well known in, in John Stott. We Here at Premier, we have an entire podcast series where you can hear some of John Stott's um, sermons. And um, it really is remarkable preaching. And you were able to hear that firsthand. Yeah, can I can I give you a, a secret, Sam? I John Stott is one of the most formative Christian teachers in my Christian formation and spiritual formation. Um, double listening and the way he applied the words to uh, to to life was incredibly enlightening and inspiring to me. But um, I have to admit, as a young student coming to London, he had a very posh English accent that was incredibly lulling me to sleep every Sunday. I, I would have to consciously have a couple of cups of coffee before going uh, on a Sunday to, to listen to his sermon, not because of the content, but because of the accent. Brilliant. That's so funny. Um, so obviously that was a, an important moment for you. Looking back at your teenage years and your, and your 20s, 
how would you say your Christian faith changed and grew and developed over time? I imagine the faith that you have today is probably different in some ways from the from the faith that you uh, first encountered. Yes, I mean, I certainly think growing up, Christianity was just this sort of background cultural thing um, that happened once a week and was about good living. I think even then, though, I was sort of being uh, challenged by God to think more deeply because I had a couple of uh, Christian teachers at school who were very different to the stereotype of what in South Wales at the time you thought Christianity was about. Coming to London, I think I... I had made that intellectual commitment uh, to Christ and I knew what the gospel was and what my response was, but I had no concept about how radical, what a radical thing that was in terms of changing my life, really. Um, Not just a belief, but a central faith that shaped and formed my life, my decisions, um, my opinions. Um, Growing up, for example, I'd always been loved politics and been interested in politics, and there were parallel courses, really. I thought my faith was on one track and my politics was on another. And suddenly coming to London and going to student Bible studies, going to uh, Christian Union in the university, having that fellowship, having, a concept, having the teaching, realising that faith isn't in a box in one part, it is life. Um, and it is that yeast that gets into every part of it. And I think our sinful selves rebel against that and try to keep bits of our life where the faith becomes uncomfortably shining a light into dark corners. We try to keep it out of those corners. Um, But my formation in my 20s was understanding the gospel is for the whole of life. And when it came to politics, did you have any ambitions as a as a student? You know, did you want to want to be prime minister one day? Was that the kind of career path you were you were set on? I can honestly say, Sam, that probably it was an assumption made by others more than me. Um, I loved politics. Um, I really like talking, as you can probably find out from 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 me answer, giving long answers to your short questions. Um, and I was really. I I did, and I continue to believe that God ordained three institutions we see in the Bible, family, church, and government. Uh, And so government should not be this sort of uncomfortable thing that we have to put up with, but we embrace it as something that God ordained as an institution in which we come together to organise our communities and our society according to his better story for how we can live our, our lives. Uh, so for me, it was always a belief in, a belief in, in the role of politics as shaping big questions in life. Whether I wanted to go into politics, I think I was it was that was an open-ended question, but other people, because of my interests, um, assumed that I would at some point. Those things, I think, coalesced uh, in about... 2003, four, five, when I was working for the trade union Unison, um, which again is maybe a little strange for an evangelical Christian to be working in the trade union movement. Um, but why do you say that? The beginning of the talk- is that what other is that what other Christians said to you that it was strange? Why yeah. would it be strange for a Christian to do that? I think that there's an assumption that evangelicals are right of centre in their politics. Um, So either disengage with politics or if they are engaged, it's right of centre and uh, natural home would be the Conservative Party. I think that's I mean, it's an interesting assumption to make. And it does contradict, if you like, the um, the formation of all our main political parties that had evangelical, orthodox, Bible believing Christians at the root of all of our main political parties. And there, and I do think that if we are faithful to the gospel and faithful to the Bible, we should expect that there may be a way in which any of the main political parties could be our home, but also expectant that all of the main political parties will not actually be aligned fully to uh, the Lord's gospel. And therefore, we should find areas that we disagree with in all main parties as much as we agree with bits of what they do. And as you kind of indicated, it was 2005, you did stand for election and you were a a Labour candidate in that general election. Tell me a bit about that time and what the reaction was from Christian friends. Um, As you say, I think you're right. There is sometimes an assumption that Christians are right of centre and unlikely perhaps to find a home in the Labour Party, as clearly you, you had at that stage. 
Yes, and I don't think that, if I'm honest, um, I think there are lots of reasons why the Labour Party then um, aligned with lots of my faith-motivated passions and where I thought, how I thought, uh, what the answers to those problems should be. Um, but equally, it was sometimes uncomfortable being a Christian in in that party. Uh, 2003, 4, 5, that around that time, I was approached by a couple of constituencies, councillors and friends back in South Wales say, would you be interested in running? I worked for the trade union Unison at the time, and they are affiliated to the Labour Party. So what they are able to do is sort of put people on an approved list. Uh, it doesn't say yes or no that you're going to get a seat, but it sort of shows that you sort of tick some of the boxes. Um, I helped them train a selection panel, and that selection panel said, I know you were doing mock interviews, but we think you'd be amazing as an MP. Why don't you think about running? Or we would support you. And at the same time, one of the constituencies back in Wales started getting serious. Uh, to cut a long story short, I went back and had a few meetings, and I thought, uh, spoke about it with my wife, Melinda, I thought there were probably five or six people ahead of me that would be selected as a Labour candidate. And I thought, there's no point in me going through all of this effort uh, to not win. And over the course of the next two days, when I'd made that decision, all half a dozen candidates phoned me up and said, we've decided not to run, but we'd really like to back you to be the candidate for the Labour Party in the constituency. So I think slightly reluctantly, I thought there's clearly God is making bumpy roads straight and smooth for me to run. I've got to admit, I felt a real calling to run the race but I can hand on heart say it, not once did I think that the Lord was calling me to be the prime minister or or even an MP. Would I have loved to have won the election? Absolutely. Um, do I think that God was saying that I wouldn't win? No, I don't say that at all. I just say that I felt called to run, but I wasn't angry with God that I didn't win. Um, but the election campaign was difficult. Sam, I think you alluded to me sort of sharing my experience there. What came out very quickly um, was it was a very Welsh-speaking community where the neighbouring area from where I grew up, so I really, I felt, in a sense, I felt local. Um, I was a Welsh speaker, and yet I was portrayed as an English person parachuted in by the Labour hierarchy. That was a big issue for a very local sort of community. But also, um, my opponent... Um, came out at the time as being same-sex attracted. Um, one of the reasons he came out at the beginning of the campaign uh, was a suggestion that I was running a homophobic campaign against him as an evangelical Christian. Um, there was no evidence of that. Uh, in fact, um, that the evidence that was suggested to me afterwards that could have been used was incredibly weak. I mean, to give you an example, um, it was a suggestion that because I had a picture of my wife and I on our campaign literature, I was somehow flaunting my heterosexuality. Um, so I think that there was definitely a, um, my faith was certainly held up as a negative uh, by my opponents, not just one. Um, was it a really difficult campaign? Absolutely. When you walk down the street with your mum or your wife and there's a, campaign poster with your picture on it and the word fascist written across the face by people who did not know me at all and also sometimes people who'd known me from childhood who were quite happy seemingly happy to be bystanders while whilst lies were told about me that's incredibly difficult um in some ways less difficult for me as the candidate than actually for family and friends around me and those who had volunteered so much of their time and effort to campaign for me. But I think my calling to run the race, and I'll sort of finish with this, was a calling to be faithful um, and to try to be faithful to the Bible's teaching and not just on what I stood for in terms of my beliefs, but also the way that I did it. So we always had a Sabbath on a Sunday as a campaign. Uh, we never went down the route of negative campaigning. Maybe I was idealistic in thinking that the um, politics was like the West Wing, when sometimes it's more like the House of Cards and sort of in, in its depravity. 
but that's not to say that we should not be light in that darkness as Christians. And so I'm I'm proud of the campaign that I ran, the witness that I was during that campaign, but it was an incredibly difficult process. Yeah. And how did your faith help you and support you during what sounds like a very, very tough time for you personally? And And we often forget, don't we, that behind all the arguments and the politics, these are real people with real families and real lives and words can be incredibly hurtful. Yeah, I think to know that my friends back in Old Souls Langham Place were praying for me, um, for checking in with me, uh, giving advice to me. Um, when I was away from my wife, for example, uh, Richard Bees, the rector at the time, I said, how do you cope, Richard, with travelling a lot and being away from your wife? And he said, well, Billy Graham always used to tell me that um, at sort of, I think it was like five o'clock or seven o'clock every night, wherever he was in the world, he would stop and pray for his wife and knew that his wife was praying for him. Um, so there were practical bits of advice like that. Um, I found a local church to worship at and sort of started worshipping there and was a member of that church for, well, a, a part of that community for about six months during the campaign. Ultimately, I think that you have to really rely on the knowledge that your identity is in Christ, not in anything else. So if I'd had a good day campaigning where lots of people had said how wonderful I was and amazing. I was no better or worse in God's eyes than the day where I felt awful and rubbish and under attack all the time. So I absolutely hardened, I guess, and matured in understanding where my real identity lead, lay. Yeah. And given the experiences you had in that campaign and how how tough it was, it's it's some might say surprising that you're now sitting here as CEO of CARE. We'll come on and talk about CARE. But one of the things CARE does is encourages Christians to be involved in politics. And one might hear your story and think, well, you know, if 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 fascist was graffitied across a photo of me during a political campaign, I probably wouldn't then carry on dedicating my life to encouraging Christians to get involved in, in politics. I'd probably want to run a mile away from it. So why are you such a passionate believer still in Christians being involved in what is perceived as a very dirty world yeah i think for, for my very much because of my personal experience sam i sort of want to do two things one is to whenever i meet an mp for the first time i hope at somewhere in that conversation i just want to say to them thank you for putting yourself where you are there to be shot at um and to be abused verbally sort of in person sometimes online frequently and I think that the vast majority of MPs, whatever the rep reputation is, whatever we think of MPs, the vast majority are in there because they want to serve the public, serve the nation and do a good job. Most of the MPs and peers that I meet share aspirations of wanting this country to be better, want people to be more prosperous and well off and to protect those who are being persecuted Um now, there are sometimes vast differences in the tactics in which they think that can be achieved. But most people, and to understand that an MP at the end of the day is a person trying to do the best that they can and start and end with that assumption that they're not perfect, but they're also not in it to lie. You know, we've, we know stories, don't we, that hit the headlines of MPs out on the take or on the take. But most aren't like that. Most are working really hard to try to do a good job. So I'm I'm motivated by the fact that not many people do meet up with them and say, do you know, what? well done, thank you, keep going. Secondly, how can I encourage you? What can I pray for you? And then do you realise that the Bible probably has really good solutions of how to speak into some of the challenges that you're trying to grapple with as a politician right now? And would you mind me sharing what the Bible says about that issue? And then lastly, to sort of to maybe slightly surprise some of them by sort of saying both with the issues that we raise with them, but also to say that this is not about criticism. It is about a good news, a better story that we have to share. So at CARE, we have three things that motivate us. We love all people and we want to see all people flourish because they're made in God's image. We speak with truth and grace because the ends never justify the means. We have to be Christ-like in the way that we act, not just in sort of the, the, the end point that we want to get to. 
And the last one is that we believe in good public policy. So we don't leave our brains at home because we're proposing biblical positions. Because of that, we are thoughtful thinking Christians. That's one thing that John Stott showed me when I was growing up was that actually Christians need to embrace the truth. We are conservative and we want to conserve the, the core fundamentals of the gospel and the Bible, but we can be radical in how that applies to real life and in the solutions that we come up with. So sometimes we shock politicians by one being hopeful, optimistic, solution focused, and hopefully being creative and courageous and bold, because we know that ultimately we are under God's sovereignty in all that we do. You highlighted a couple of things there that you want us as Christians to be doing in our political engagement. One of them was just being gracious in the in the way we communicate. Another one was was being thoughtful and, and thinking deeply through the issues. Is it true that a lot of MPs' perceptions of Christians is not those things? Is it true that a lot of MPs actually, they do hear from Christians, but perhaps not in a particularly gracious way or a particularly thoughtful way, but they're more likely to receive quite an angry email about all the things they're doing wrong. And here's all my scripture references for why your decision last week in the Commons was was anti-Christian faith. You know, is, there, is, there, is that, first of all, is that a problem that Christians are still communicating in a very ungracious way? Uh, and secondly, is that the kind of perception you're grappling against with some MPs who think, uh oh, you're an evangelical. I know what you think. I know how you're going to communicate. And I'm not looking forward to hearing that. Thank you. Yes, I think that's true. And I think the sad thing is that probably we are no better or worse than the average person uh, in an MP's mind. Um, uh, on a good day, they may feel that we do nice things a lot of the time. On a bad day, they probably think we moan and complain and criticise more than the average uh, person. I think that one of the the point that one of the saddest things that I come across is when Christian MPs feel really jaded and under attack by by Christians and by by churches. Just because you're a Christian MP does not mean that we should give Christian MPs a free pass as fellow Christians. But equally, if a Christian MP's only experience of their church is negative, then there's something very sad about that. Indeed, one MP that I spoke to uh, said to me, because I sort of sometimes ask them, you know, well, how's your how's your church life? And sort of where do you go to church? Is it in the constituency or in London? How does that how does that work? And one MP was very blunt and I think sort of spoke for a number, said, I've stopped going to church because every time I go to church, they know I'm an MP. So I, oh, the only conversations I have with is people coming up to me, either wanting me to do something or telling me what I've done is wrong. Um, and in politics, I think, is a really high calling for any individual. Um, and if we constantly sort of assume the worst of politicians, at, at some point, politicians will lower themselves to our expectations of them. Uh, and so when we vote and when we correspond with, with politicians, I hope care role models the fact that we can be critical and we can critique what governments and politicians do. But we always try to sort of tell them, explain why we think that's wrong and also offer an alternative that we think is better rather than just criticise. So I think one of the real challenges for the church is to role model truth and grace in the public square. There's a theologian, Sam, called Richard Mao, who you may be familiar with, who, who uses this phrase, uh, convicted civility. And he says Christians should model convicted civility because he said there are lots of people in the public square who've got strong convictions but aren't very civil. And there are lots of people who are civil but haven't got very strong convictions. We as Christians should be role models of convicted civility, as in we speak the truth, but with grace at all times. Yeah, let's talk a bit a bit more about care. As I mentioned, you're CEO and the charity just celebrated this this October 40 years, your 40th birthday. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and as, as part of that, you launched a new mission statement talking about politics renewed and lives transformed. And also this phrase, speaking God's better story, which I noticed already in this interview, you, you're right on message, Ross, because you've already used, already used the phrase a better story at least once. But the, the new the new strap line, speaking God's better story into a broken world. So can you just put a bit of flesh on the bones of that, of what that 
is going to look like and all that does look like in practice for you as an organization to be seeing politics renewed, life transformed and speaking God's better story into a broken world? Yeah, well, I, I think Care's story, I mean, I've been the chief exec of Care now for um, two years. And I'm very conscious of this amazing history that I've stepped into with care of coming out of the nationwide festival of light in the 1970s of the church, the, the UK church coming together, crossing their ecumenical boundaries to sort of say, hang on, lots of social reforms have taken place without us actually realizing what was happening and the consequences of it. And we as a church, and as the UK church are uncomfortable and un- uneasy with changes to pornography laws, gambling laws, um, thinking about some social trends in particular, how do we respond to that? So that movement of the 70s turned into the organisation that was CARE, founded uh, 40 years ago this year. Uh, and, and, and that gathering story... is worth it's worth it's worth saying that gathering it was in Trafalgar Square I think at the time was one of the largest gatherings of of Christians ever in the UK um and my understanding is as you say it kind of came off the back of the kind of 60s sexual revolution and laws being changed in the 60s and 70s and and, and Christians sort of saying actually we have a view on this and we want to stand up and campaign so it was a gathering in, in Trafalgar Square and a march and out of that eventually came care and and i suppose in some ways very little has changed because in some ways you can say well christians still are concerned about some of the laws being passed and want to have their say on the other hand obviously 40 years is a long time and the kind of landscape of the country and even who today would identify as as a christian those numbers are far fewer today than they would have been in the 70s yes you're right and and it still i think remains the largest ever gathering of christians that sort of moment back in 1971 that sort of was was kick-started the, the movement. And I think it's probably should be unsurprising to us that um, that the sinful human heart doesn't change. And so many of those causes and issues that people were concerned and anxious about back in the 70s remain the same temptations and sin that we encounter now. But of course, the society and the world moves on. So the context um, and the way in which they are expressed is different. So to give you an example, um, there were concerns about the relaxation of pornography laws in the 1970s and 80s. Care campaigned really vigorously and successfully to sort of put some restrictions on the liberalisation of pornography laws and selling of pornography uh, in shops back in the 1980s and 1990s um, through a Wilberforcean sort of cunningness uh, at times using parliamentary legislation and guidance. So has pornography gone away? No, it hasn't. Where's the front line today? It's online and on the internet and on the World Wide Web. And therefore, we have been at the forefront of making changes to the online safety bill that wanted to just conveniently ignore pornography as a uh, as a harmful activity. We were part of a coalition that at times didn't really want to make this a big issue. Um, a coalition, interestingly, not just with Christian organisations, but with secular um, children's charities um, who we campaigned alongside. Um, but we stuck to our guns and said, no, pornography is a harmful behaviour. Um, yes, we need strict age verification laws to sort of try to make access to pornography online really, really difficult. And we've been successful in getting that through uh, and included in the bill. The challenge now is to make sure it's implemented well. And we'll sort of keep on the back of government and others to make sure it's implemented. But it's an example of how, how the, some of the same issues in the 1970s reoccurred in the 1980s and then the 90s and now even in the 2020s. But they just sort of emerged in different contexts because the world has, has moved on. But I also think that as well as being a prophetic voice on some issues where maybe so society and social trends have moved on, since the 1970s and in some ways the the biblical christian view and the evangelical view seems outdated and old-fashioned there's a need to be a prophetic voice in society about that but there are also other issues where we believe there are political debates that are now really being engaged with now there's a need for a biblical voice into those debates as well and i don't just mean the conversion therapies and buffer zones to um, abortion clinics I mean, what does the Bible say about the cost of living crisis? 
um, you know, the the New Testament, Jesus speaks more about money in in sort of in his earthly ministry than he does sexuality, uh, and so there's there's a challenge there for us as Christians to not just act compassionately out of an immediate response of a food bank or um, sort of debt management. They are brilliant things, and I'd want people to support those. But also, let's take a step back and say, what can the government do to change the context in which we find ourselves and address some of those issues? So there are relevant debates today um, that mean the prophetic voice of faithfulness, but there are relevant debates today that we speak a biblical message into that might be surprising. And we need to make sure the Bible is a relevant voice there. It's not just, if you like, a wishy-washy Christianity, but it's a rooted, theologically deep uh, argument that we're proposing. Which of these topics has not been covered on PremierChristianity.com? UFOs, near-death experiences, Doctor Who, Christ's return, the faith of celebrities, and Andrew Tate. Trick question. We don't shy away from any topic. We cover faith as it affects us in daily life and give you the bigger picture. PremierChristianity.com. Special podcast subscription offer at PremierChristianity.com slash podcast. Yes, you speak about sort of surprising causes and some of the least surprising or less less surprising causes would be family, ethics, sexuality, abortion. But I think one of the surprising ones that people may not know that you campaign on is AI and robotics. Why is a Christian charity that's involved in politics and is known perhaps for some of the more ethical family issues, why is robotics such a key area of interest for you right now? I think one of the things that AI really sort of highlights is what is the question of what does it mean to be human? So uh, one of the profound questions that theologians have grappled with over the centuries is Genesis one twenty eight. What is it? Well, uh, what Genesis sort of chapter one? What does it mean? Be what it does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean then that in the image of God we have the cultural mandate? Sort of one Genesis one twenty eight. Um, AI really profoundly challenges our understanding of what it means to be human, um, because if we reduce for example, made in the image of God to rational thought, then increasingly the fact that there's artificial intelligence that can think rationally about things, does that mean that a robot or uh, chat GBT uh, is uh, is human? No, it doesn't. So I think one is there's a, there needs we need to have a deeper, more profound understanding of what it means to be human and made in God's image. So AI challenges that and and challenges to think more deeply and to then understand in what way in what ways are we as image bearers diminished sometimes by the world around us the second area then is well as image bearers for example we are called to a cultural mandate we are called to work we are called to subdue to create and cultivate culture do we abdicate that responsibility to a robot or a computer algorithm No, we shouldn't. And then lastly, if we are delegating lots of powers and authority to a algorithm, then what are the ethical boundaries that we want to sort of put on those those things? So there are issues here of bioethics, as well as deeper, wider theological questions uh, to be grappled as well. And it just shows really how the Bible applies to all of life. And something that was written 2000 years or more ago applies to the here and now. Uh, it is not a ancient, out-of-date religion. It is a active, living word of God. It's not It's not out of date, and the, and the truth doesn't change. And I can hear lots of Christians saying amen to that. But how do you, how do you reconcile that with, you know, to use an example of something, CARE and lots of other Christian charities would have campaigned on at the time. A lot of Christian charities oppose the introduction of gay marriage. Now, that's not an issue you are currently, as far as I can tell, campaigning on to say we should reverse the law because gay marriage is against what the Bible teaches. So what would you say to someone who says, well, the truth doesn't change. Why Why have you given up fighting that particular battle? Well, I, I think, Sam, what I'd say is that our position is still firmly rooted in the Bible uh, on sexuality and on marriage. So we do still consistently uh, and regularly 
do work around promoting marriage as an institution and our understanding of marriage be, is being between a man and, and a woman. So is it something that is actively campaigned on? To some extent, no, because a lot of what we do is in response to what politicians are talking about and what piece of legislation are going through Parliament at any one time. But that's not to say that we are not a faithful, consistent voice on issues like sexuality, like on marriage and, and other issues. So I would say is, yes, we do do work on that. Uh, it may not be the most prominent campaign, but we try to sort of to be balance that faithful voice, prophetic voice, also with where can we actually really realise change and make an impact. And sometimes that's areas where uh, what are politicians speaking about, talking about, what legislation is going through Parliament. So we want to speak into those things as well. So I guess there's a, a pragmatic consideration there. If, if the politicians aren't debating that particular issue, you aren't going to bring it up. You're going to inst instead be led to a certain extent by what's already on the agenda and then influence. There's a kind of, there is a kind of pragmatism there, isn't there? Um, yes, there is. Um, I think that it's always a balance, isn't it, between um, both pragmatism and trying to sort of get something on the agenda. So using opportunities that are there as well as then trying to shape uh, events to get your issues on, on it. Equally, there's a balance between issues where that are potentially bridge building um, and issues where we know we will probably be in a minority um, and countercultural. Uh, and I think that care has been consistently um, prayerful in trying to balance those different dynamics. Um, so we absolutely do not shy away from being countercultural and standing out and getting lots of criticism for some of our positions on things, whether it's pro-life or sexuality. Um, you know, we we get attacked regularly several times a year. Um and trying to undermine not just our position on something, but trying to undermine us as a charity. And uh, we know that there are people out there and organisations there that would far rather care not exist <laughs> and not be that voice in the public square. Yes. And that is because of the, I'd say, the countercultural issues that we continue to speak up on. Yes. I, I was going to ask you about that, about some of the criticism that's come your way, because as you say, it does pop up, particularly in the media, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, one more recent uh, example I came across was an article on Open Democracy, and it was about Kate Forbes and said that Kate Forbes had worked for a, quote, shadowy Christian group. So so that's describing care as shadowy and specifically attach you for not declaring where your funding comes from. So there is this kind of perception amongst some in the in the mainstream that um, it, it, not just that, that Christians are a bit weird, but increasingly that, that Christians are actually bad for society. And in this, this particular case, calling care this shadowy group that we should be concerned of. How do you respond to that kind of objection that comes your way? As I say, it typically comes from those outside of the church, I would say, rather than from Christians. But nevertheless, uh, you have to deal with that. So how do you respond to it? I think that what we seek to do in being Christ-like is be as open and as transparent as we possibly can. So we've got nothing to hide in terms of where our support comes from, how we run as an organisation, how we are governed, uh, all of our work that we do. Uh, in fact, sometimes we are far more transparent and open than some of the organisations that are accusing us of being shadowy. Um, so we are very careful to try to uphold the highest standards of governance, the highest standards of applying to applying the law in different areas. Um, and we are constantly striving to be exemplary citizens in that sense. Um, if you think about the Bible, both Jeremiah's call to the Israelites in exile, as well as individuals like Daniel, you know, wherever we can, we should be exemplary citizens in following the laws until it comes to the point where that is contrary to our ability to um, express our, our faith um, and our religious freedom. Um, and it's when it's calling for us to be uh, to to be contrary to the gospel and the Bible's teaching. At that point, of course, we we are allowed to sort of, if you like, step back from um, complying. Don't, don't you think articles articles like this, you know, aren't they just evidence of, you know, frankly, 
an anti-Christian bias that's inherent in some of these people and organisations. They just don't like they don't like Christians. They don't like Christians being involved in politics. Is it not just as simple as that? That there's a there's an anti-Christian agenda and so when care is seen as a christian organization involved in politics you get lumped in with well christians they're bad news is it not just as simple as that kind of intolerant attitude that um that's resulting in this i think the unsatisfying answer to that sam is yes and no um in terms of are there people out there who just don't like the gospel and don't like christians who stand faithfully behind the gospel and the bible's teaching that's absolutely true does that leads to sometimes attack and persecution yes it absolutely does do i think that has always existed yes i do do i think that it's worse in the uk than other parts of the world for the vast majority of our brothers and sisters in christ in the most of the world we have an immensely privileged position so do do i hate being attacked for my faith and my beliefs and wanting to follow the Bible's teaching. Yes, I do. Do I think it's unfair? Yes, I do feel it's unfair sometimes. Do I think there's a degree of sometimes hypocrisy on the attacks against Christianity? Yes, I do. But I would be want to be very careful to set down the context of we are still immensely privileged in this country uh, in terms of the ability to proclaim our faith and put forward what we believe the Bible's better story is. It's interesting because uh, you know I, I speak to some some Christians who would uh, who would a- agree with you in the sense that they're feeling more marginalised and and some have used used the word persecuted. We actually surveyed our own audience here at Premier, and the vast majority vast majority said it's it's becoming harder rather than easier to be a Christian in the UK, and the vast majority said that they were concerned about about laws being passed now. Now, I've I've seen some Christian groups respond to that with, um, let's say, quite a, a kind of fiery, some might say aggressive, certainly assertive. We need to stand up for our rights and whether that's come to this event or sign this petition or, you know, post arguably righteously angry content on Facebook about how, come on, let's stick up for ourselves. That's not quite the tone you adopt or the tone that, that care adopts. You're a little bit more. A uh, little bit more reflective, some would say balanced. Um, but but it wouldn't it be easier just to sort of bang the drum a bit and say, come on, we're being persecuted in this country. It's all going wrong. You need to support us. That's the easier way to campaign, isn't it? You're you're treading a bit more of a nuanced line, which is admirable, but perhaps uh, not always so easy, especially when it comes to getting the support that you need. I agree, Sam. The that the 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 approach that you've outlined um, is not easy to maintain. Um, but I do think there's there's a famous quote about humility, isn't there? That actually humility is not thinking less of yourself, but think of yourself less. One of our sort of characteristics as Christians is humility. It doesn't mean that we are shrinking violets. It doesn't mean that we're downtrodden. It doesn't mean that we feel sorry for ourselves. But it does mean that we think of others more than of ourselves um, in terms of sort of wanting to serve the nation, wanting to serve others. What does loving our neighbour look like? And sometimes I think that um, we we can sometimes play into the stereotype of just being angry and against everything. Um, and I think the the, the model of, of Jesus uh, in his earthly ministry was very much to have righteous anger, to call people out for false teaching or for hypocrisy, um, but equally to love people really well. Now, I think the challenge for for care is always to try to explain to people that love and compassion doesn't always mean saying yes, or doesn't always just mean being nice, or doesn't sort of mean agreeing with people when that's um, counter to what we believe. But it does mean that we are respectful, that we are mindful that there's a better story, that there's a more hopeful solution, that God doesn't just oppose things, he does present a better alternative he wants people to flourish he's not a god that says no 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 he's like you can be i want you to be um and that he he calls on us into being part of his mission and part of his story and i think that's an immensely exciting thing um so i think that one of the one of the ways that we are trying to sort of um orientate ourselves in in care is 
not think of the causes as just the ends in of themselves. So we don't sort of just think of, oh, we've got nine causes at the minute that we campaign on, and it's all about winning our side of the battle or our fight on that. We're sort of moving to think about, well, who is the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner in our land for us today? Because the Bible talks about all people, but God has a particular heart for the vulnerable, the marginalised, the disadvantaged, and the disenfranchised. And where does care believe that we have a strong biblical message to speak into current relevant debates where biblical story can really make an impact to see the flourishing of some people? So we want to speak into issues of uh, pro-life from a perspective of loving and wanting to protect babies and children at risk of harm and and life beginning at conception. We want to speak into the assisted suicide, not just because we oppose assisted suicide, though we do, but because we love older people and we want to see them flourish in older age. We want to sort of speak into the context of families struggling to cope and what does stronger families mean in that context and what does marriage play as a part of that. So we sort of speak into sort of issues out of the motivation, like the heart of God, we hope, that we love we love people, but, but there are particular groups that are disadvantaged and marginalised. What can we do to speak a biblical story that sees them flourish and what role does the government and public policy play in that two years is is fairly short in in the world of politics you've been ceo for two years but you know what have been the standout moments you think wow this is a fantastic example actually of christians we've been able to influence policy for goods we don't see things come through the system that, that are good not just for christians but good for our society and good for everyone and where those things that really energize you to think this is not just a constant losing battle but actually, here's here's an area where we're making real progress. What what would be the things that come to mind? So I think there's the big and the small there, Sam. And I think there's there's three areas in particular that that we we work in, and the areas that we work in. One is politics. The other is the church, and then the last one is developing new leaders and young leaders for public life in the future. Um, and if I think about sort of those three areas, we've had. Um, maybe not hugely visible, but very significant wins in the areas of um, thinking about human trafficking and modern slavery. Uh, we've got a, if not unique, a very distinctive ability within care to be able to draft amendments to legislation and draft bills. So I think we've done an amazing job at sort of helping some politicians um, draft pieces of legislation that have become laws around protecting those victims of modern slavery. As I mentioned before, online safety bills are a very recent sort of uh, example of, of success. Then also um, this year, as well as celebrating 40 years of care, we also celebrated 30 years of the leadership programme of an intentional investment in saying, we believe that public leaders, uh, leaders of public life and our politic, political leaders are really important in setting the tone of the nation and passing good laws. And so we've invested for 30 years into developing several generations now of young leaders to go into the public square with having been formed spiritually, deep theological roots, but also the skills to be great leaders. And we celebrated 30 years. And actually, looking back, I had the benefit of the 30th anniversary, having a collection of people that have gone into to politics, senior civil servants, senior senior business leaders and entrepreneurs, church leaders, and people working in public services, scattered across the nation and even into other countries. They've had an amazing impact in their fields of work and in their study. And then lastly, just to think about the, the we've got a new team that are going out into churches and speaking into on Sundays and midweeks and actually seeing churches switch on to their calling to be salt and light in their community and not to think about supporting care, yes, to do things in, in Westminster and in Edinburgh and in Belfast, but also thinking how we can support the church's care to for them to be salt and light in their local communities. So it's that partnership at a national and local level that's been really exciting to start to start off. A couple of years ago, we ran a cover story, which I think was entitled, Does the Church Still Care About Abortion? And the reason we did it was we we realized a lot of Christians are quite reluctant to speak on difficult subjects, uh, and it, not just abortion, but perhaps um, same-sex relationships and, and other topics that are very personal to people and have, let's say, pastoral sensitivities built built within them. 
and we found a lot of church leaders, for example, would not address those kind of issues kind of from the front of church. And actually, a lot of churches would would probably not welcome a kind of campaign that involves them sticking their head above the parapet a bit and speaking out on these issues, perhaps for fear of how the local newspaper might report them or even some of what you encountered during your campaign of, of being called words that are just untrue and very hurtful. What's your encouragement to, to a church leader like that who might agree with you on all of the important theological issues and might say, that's great what you're doing, Ross, it's great what CARE's doing, but I just don't feel like I can put my head above the parapet on this because uh, people are afraid. People are afraid of, of speaking up about their Christian faith for, for fear of some of the consequences and probably not helped by some of the stories we've seen in the media of Christians in in secular workplaces who have sometimes lost their jobs for espousing Christian points of view, there is a kind of fear. What would be your response to a Christian in that position who's reluctant to get involved to the same extent that you're involved in some of these issues? I, I would I would humbly beseech them to um to to lift their head above the parapet and not to do it in an unconscious, unthinking way, but to say, what does speaking with truth and grace mean? Speaking with truth and grace doesn't mean that we shy away from truth. But it also means that we're not we're not ungracious in how we we say it. So I think that my 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 humble beseeching would be to say that standing up for the truth with grace sometimes means saying things that are culturally unpopular, or even within your church congregation saying things that are unpopular, but are nevertheless true and needed to be said. Because if they're not said, there's an assumption that either truth is not truth our truth is not that important. Uh, and so I would, again, with great humility, say that one of my lessons is to increasingly rely and trust on the Lord's sovereignty. That uh, that means that sometimes we do things that we know are going to be unpopular, but we do it because we are called to speak the truth with grace, but also because we believe the Lord is sovereign over those things. And where we have to trust that faithfulness is not always rewarded as in the world's eyes, but it is rewarded in the Lord's eyes. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.